Okay, class. So I wanted to talk about model fitting in today's episode. And let's call it episode two on model fitting, right? So what do you mean by fitting a model, right? So before we start full-fledged on it, one of my goals as I do this podcasting venture is to make sure I can reduce the dependencies of my podcasting from additional materials that you have to use, right? So one of the dependencies that I used in my previous recording was to have the kind of a cheat sheet, right? Where you could see some of the new terms that I use. So that is kind of, I feel like a nice dependency to have, but Aside from that, two things that I will do is I will reduce the necessary dependencies. And second, I will consciously try to speak uh, slow and articulate my words and possibly repeat some of the keywords. So you can take away a lot of this without really resorting to additional materials. Even the dependency cheat sheet that I provide will potentially reiterate some of the important terms, but you may not have to look at it uh, in synchrony with listening to the podcast, right? So these are some of my goals uh, and I'm kind of spelling them out so that I keep them in my mind as well, right? So with that, let's get started. Uh, this episode is going to be on the basics of model fitting. Uh, one of my favorite words this, these days is smorgasbord. So I will use a smorgasbord of concepts to tell you a little bit about model fitting. So I will cover uh, very different concepts potentially. We'll see how this goes. And I also don't want to have a very long episode, so I'll keep that in mind as well. So a bounded amount of time. Another thing that you might notice is sometimes I try to keep the kind of jokes or the kind of uh, anecdotes kind of technically motivated, right? So when I say bounded, bounded is something that you use a lot in computer science, right? So within the bounds of something, right? Um, so you will notice that, or if you don't, I'm just telling you that is something that I try to do so that you kind of get the language of computer science. Okay, so with that, let's actually get started. So one of the things to keep in mind is um, if you're doing uh, or if you're fitting a model rather, you kind of want to have an optimal model, a model that is neither overfitting nor underfitting. And I'm hoping we can do some form of an episode, whether a video one and, or an audio one on this, is the bias versus variance dilemma in machine learning, right? Bias, that is B-I-A-S, versus variance, dilemma in machine learning. So you can actually think of bias as being underfitting, and you can think of variance as being overfitting. So if you have a very simple uh, model, then that would be biased, whereas if you have an overfitted model, you can think of it as having a lot of variance in it, right? So our goal is to have neither too much bias nor too much variance, right? So I said I'm gonna have a little bit of dependency uh, where I'll have this technical cheat sheet. And again, this is kind of optional, but I have actually kind of created this cheat sheet beforehand as opposed to creating it after the fact for my previous episode. And maybe you can tell me with a yay or nay if you think that affected uh, the quality of the podcast. Of course, there are lots of other variables that may 
uh, affect the quality of the podcast, but I'm just telling you, uh, one of the variables in this case is I've actually created the cheat sheet beforehand. And that's kind of a dependency that is kind of going to be built into the very framework of this second episode, because I might potentially tell you, hey, look at this figure or look at this concept that I have in there. But I feel like definitely this figure that goes with the cheat sheet. So if you look at the top right, you will see that I have different models, right? And in that top right figure, you'll see I have um, basically a panel where I have broken it down into three sub figures. And the label for this is model selection. And this specific example is an example of a polynomial regression model, right? So I'm going to uh, wait for a few seconds so that you can kind of maybe pull it up or, you know, kind of um, see what I'm talking about if you have the cheat sheet in front of you. Um, if not, I'm actually going to try to do a good job of this. Um, I'll see how much I succeed, but I'm going to try to have it such that I kind of try to paint the picture of these different variants of the model fitting uh, dilemma, right? So in this specific case, I have a polynomial regression model that I'm trying to fit. And um, the picture going along with the picture that you have in the cheat sheet is that in the first of the three models, right, uh, my legend would be where I have in blue the model, in red I have the true function, and the small blue dots, think of those as the samples, right? So in the first model, if we kind of have like the blue dots kind of forming a curve, but if I draw my model, which is the blue line, as a straight line, which is disregarding the the fit of these different points, then what I would be doing if I draw a straight line as opposed to a jagged line trying to fit through the points, I would be underfitting. So there would be uh, quite a bit of bias in my model, right? If on the other hand, I have a kind of a smooth line that is going through the points, but not necessarily trying to capture every single point, then I would possibly have something called an optimal model that is neither underfitting nor overfitting. On the other hand, as you see in the extreme right, uh, we have this polynomial regression with a degree 15. And what we see there is the model is trying to, in blue is the model line, and it's trying to go through each of the points. So we have a very jagged line, and that is where we are overfitting. So we don't want to underfit and we don't want to overfit. And this is kind of at a very high level, what is called the bias versus variance dilemma, right? Now, one of the things that I told you that there are ways in computer science or rather in machine learning to prevent this bias versus variance dilemma. And for that, what we do is we use something called regularization. Right? So there are many different kinds of regularization that can be used in order to uh, decrease the, uh, the overfitting in the model, right? So what we do is a commonly used regularization uh, terms that are added uh, to the model are L1 and L2 regularization, where L1 is lasso is called lasso and L2 is called ridge. 
So L1 and L2 actually are typically used with regression problems. And since this is a regression problem, in this case, I told you it's the model selection and the model itself is a polynomial regression, uh, lasso and ridge makes a lot of sense. So L1 regression or lasso regression and L2 regression or ridge regression, these are two ways of adding regression to prevent overfitting in a regression model. Now, there are ways in which you can generalize L1 and L2 regression, and some of the ways in which uh, you can do that, they are called Tikhonov uh, regularization and Jacobian regularization. So sometimes you might notice that since this is the initial class where I'm kind of trying to give you the foundations, I may not go too deep into the concepts, but I might sometimes just give you words that are used in a specific domain and this will whet your appetite to go look that up, right? So I'll just give you kind of a very high level snapshot of regression um, related regularization terms that are used and one is L1 or lasso regression, L-A-S-S-O, L2 or ridge, R-I-D-G-E, ridge regression and the generalization of L1 and L2 uh, regularization is um, one example is Tikhonov regularization, Tikhonov is spelled T-I-K-H-O N-O-V, and another is Jacobian regularization that is spelled J-A-C-O-B-I-A-N. So these are some examples of regularization. And like I said, regularization kind of decreases the complexity of the model and it prevents overfitting. So it addresses the bias versus variance dilemma of machine learning. Right? So I used a lot of terms here. One is bias versus variance. I told you bias is like underfitting and variance is like overfitting. So if you happen to look at the cheat sheet, you will basically select the model in the center, which has a degree four, which is possibly looking like the best model, which is neither underfitting nor overfitting. Oftentimes to prevent overfitting, or to decrease the unnecessary complexity of a model, you use something called regularization terms in a model. And some examples of regularization that are associated with a regression model are L1 or lasso regression, L2 or ridge regression, and then there are generalized uh, terms such as Tikhonov regression and Jacobian regression. Right? With that, let us move on a little more. Another concept, so one is one concept, let, if we were to take away from this, is bias versus variance. The second concept uh, is the training and the test data set. So one of the things that you want to keep in mind is when you have the data set, right, you can divide the data set into three different parts. One is for training, which is typically the bulk of the data set. Of course, there might be exceptions to this, but typically the bulk of the data set is used for training. And this is intuitive, right? Because when you're training the model, you want to expose the model to the nuances of the different 
patterns that might be there in the model, right? So you want to kind of give it the maximum amount of data possible to train the model. And sometimes that's how training may take longer because you're using a larger snapshot of the data. But one of the things that people uh, say that, you know, even if training is longer and that means that our model is well trained, you don't really have to worry too much about training taking longer. Of course, this is uh, to say that training is not taking so long as, you know, it's taking months and months or years and years, right? So within bounds or within limits, it is okay for the training to take longer because that means that we have a model that has learned the nuances and the model is ready to go out into the wild, right? So we have a certain degree of um, certainty that our model may do pretty well in the wild. Right? And that's how we expose our model to a greater chunk of the data set in order to give it those lessons, those nuances or subtleties or idiosyncrasies in the data set. Right? So one example could be we take 70% of the data set for training the model and 30% for validating and testing. Right? And here again, uh, another nuance here is typically you say the training part and the testing part but something that people sometimes don't account for is the part of the data set that is used for validation. And this is another very cool concept because what validation essentially does is it sees that the hyperparameters, remember these are hyperparameters as opposed to parameters. Now hyperparameters, uh, you can define them as parameters that are not learned by the model typically, but are fed to the model that this is a hyperparameter that you use in order to run the model. So hyperparameters are parameters that are not typically learned by the model, but are fed to the model, right? And that will make a little more sense when we have an episode uh, on hyperparameters. But one thing to keep in mind is you need to tune these hyperparameters. So although these are not typically learned by the model, you may still have to tune the hyperparameters so that the model is using the correct hyperparameters. Now, to decrease the abstraction of the word hyperparameters, uh, given that I have given you a very brief introduction to neural networks, one of the hyperparameters that may be applicable to neural networks or to the area of deep learning is, for example, the depth of the neural network. So how many hidden layers are there in the neural network? That is a possible hyperparameter and it is a very important hyperparameter and something that you would tune using something called validation. So the validation step would help you tune hyperparameters such as the depth of the model. Another possible hyperparameter since we are talking about deep learning is the width of the model. That is, in each of these hidden layers, how many nodes wide are these hidden layers, right? So every hidden layer may not have the same width, right? So the more the nuances in the width, the more the number of hyperparameters to tune. And all of this tuning is done using a step called validation. So in between training the model and testing the model, right? So testing the model is kind of the production mode of the model that you've let the model go loose in the wild and then you're testing it on unseen data, right? So before you do that, one of the things that happens in between is the validation step where the model learns hyperparameters under which the model works well. 
And one of the things, again, I'm going to throw in a little bit of an extra step here and tell you that although hyperparameters are given to the model, one of the big things in the field these days is, you know, it's kind of counterproductive to think of hyperparameters that have to be given to the model. Right? Given that the whole thing about machine learning is for it to automatically learn stuff, the fact that there are these important parameters, right? I'm using parameters loosely here because I'm actually referring to hyperparameters. The fact that these have to be fed to the model as opposed to being learned by the model is kind of counterintuitive and counterproductive to the whole idea of automating the system, right? And so the field is moving toward being able to learn some of these hyperparameters and that falls within the domain of meta-learning, right? And there are things such as hyperopt, H-Y-P-E-R-O-P-T, or AUTO-ML, A-U-T-O-M-L. All of these uh, platforms, they basically try to come up with this meta-learning thing so that you don't have to feed the, these hyperparameters, but the model can also learn these hyperparameters. So that's an aside for this part. Right? So the second part that I wanted to talk about is how you divide the entire data set. So if you have 100% as being the total data set, you divide that into say 70% for training, 15% for validation, and then another 15% for testing. And typically this testing set, right, which sometimes may also take into its ambit the validation step, that is considered to be the held out set. Right? So you're holding it out, meaning when you're training the model, you are making sure that the model does not see this unseen part, right? And that is basically simulating what the model would do when the model is let loose in the wild. So it's very important that when you train the model, you do not expose the model to the unseen data. And what happens is when you calculate the performance of the model, the performance of the model is calculated by showing this test data set or unseen data set. So that's when you evaluate the model. So evaluation of the model is based on the testing data set. And this is the data set that you have held out for the model not to see when being trained, right? So that the model does not memorize the structure of the training data set, but generalizes from it, right? And this is essentially kind of related to the first part where we talked about regularization. Because one of the goals of regularization is that we don't want the model to memorize the data, but we want to have the model smart enough to generalize from the data, right? So again, uh, kind of uh, taking into consideration that we have the ability to look at our crotch uh, model fitting so it can have a very simple form, right? So again, we're continuing with the regression example. So you can have, and I'm also going to spell it out in case you don't want to have this dependency cheat sheet in front of you, right? So you have y is equal to theta one plus theta two x. So essentially, when we talk about model fitting, what we mean is that the model is learning the values of the theta one and theta two parameters. And if you just think of the fit of a single line, right? The theta one and theta two parameters will define the intercept and the slope of the line, right? So if you have points and if you're trying to fit a line, across the points, using theta one and theta two, you're deciding the intercept, right? 
and the slope of the line. Right? And if you want a more complex model, because you have a more complex profile of the points, then you might use a polynomial model. And a specific example is a quadratic uh, model. And in that case, you might have uh, equation such as y is equal to theta 1 plus theta 2x plus theta 3x squared. Right? So this is a quadratic model because of that x squared term, right? So the linear model is y is equal to theta 1 plus theta 2x. This is a linear model, and model fitting in this case means you're learning the parameters of theta 1, theta 2, so the values of these par parameters, rather. And when you have the quadratic variant of the model, because you have a more complex uh, scattering or smattering of points, then you would have y is equal to theta 1 plus theta 2x plus theta 3x squared. And here, the parameters whose values you're learning are theta 1, theta 2, and theta 3. So essentially, model fitting means you're learning the values of these parameters. And when you're fitting the model, we talked about in the second step, you would have a training step and you would have a testing step. In some cases, people omit the validation step, at least calling it out. But that is kind of understood because validation step helps you come up with the hyperparameters to tune for the model. Right? And in our example, we said if you have 100% as being the entire chunk of the data set, we might use 70% for training, 15% for validation, and another 15% for testing. Of course, this is not uh, written in stone, but this is a possible scenario. And then we said when we're doing the evaluation, we're doing the performance of the model, we're finding the performance of the model based on the test data set. Right? So we would have the model that we have trained, we would add test data, which is unseen data, and sometimes it is also called production data, right? because the model is out in the wild, and the model would then make predictions on this held out or test data set. Right? Now, since it is very important to have uh, the subtleties of uh, the data being exposed to the model, in order for the model to be trained well, so that the model can learn the different idiosyncrasies of the data set. Another important concept, and we'll call this the part three of today's podcast, is to make sure there is not too much of a data set shift. So data set shift happens when the training and testing distributions are very different. Right? So if you think of training data as being representative of the data in the wild, the probability distribution right, of the training data set and the testing data set should be kind of similar. And there are ways in which you can calculate the statistical distance between these two distributions. Right? And a very uh, commonly used statistical distance is called Kullback-Liebler divergence. Right? Again, it is called Kullback-Liebler divergence. And what that does, it's also called KL divergence. Right, So the statistical distance is measured using something called KL divergence, which stands for Kullback-Liebler divergence. And the goal is to make sure that we decrease the Kullback-Liebler divergence between the training and the test data set. So if there is too much of a difference between the training and the test data set, it essentially means that you have not 
trained your model well to show it all the different kinds of um, nuances that the model might see when thrown out into the big wide world right and KL divergence is a way in which you can quantify the difference between the training and the test data set and the goal is to decrease the KL divergence between the two data distributions right and some of the other ways in which you can calculate this a symmetrical uh, variant of this is called the JS divergence or the Jensen Shannon divergence J-E-N-S-E-N dash Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, Jensen-Shannon divergence. And the difference at a very high level between these two similarity functions or these two divergences is that Kullback-Liebler divergence is an asymmetrical divergence. I'm not going to get into too much of a depth uh, in this specific episode so that we can bound the complexity and the time taken by this episode but just the difference between the two is that js divergence is the symmetrical variant of kl divergence the other ways to show this such as uh, wasserstein distance uh, w-a-s-s-e-r-s-t-e-i-n these are all examples of similarity functions between uh, two distributions and one specific application of this is to show how representative of the data in the wild is the training data right um, so another actually uh, possibility to compare these two distributions and i was reading about this recently is called maximum mean discrepancy or mmd Okay, so I gave you a number of different examples, and this is kind of important. Uh, and it, all of these are kind of um, based on different uh, concepts from information theory. So I'm going to just whet your appetite by throwing out these words again. So we talked about KL divergence, we talked about JS divergence, we talked about Wasserstein distance, and we talked about a concept called a maximum mean discrepancy and this maximum mean discrepancy is kind of um, comes from taking a kernel embedding of distributions and then calculating the distance between the distributions right i said kernel embedding of distributions so actually the final and the fourth concept i will cover here is that sometimes you may need to massage your data in order for the machine learning algorithm to be able to work on your data set better so in that um, vein we basically have uh, something called categorical data right so when we say categorical data as opposed to numerical data an example of categorical data is for example say if you have different kinds of pets for whatever reason your model takes as inputs uh, different kinds of pets right this might be uh, for example an object detection algorithm right where you might have different kinds of pets being fed to the model and the model has to spit out what is the pet right so say you have a cat you have a dog and you have a parrot, right? So these are the three kinds of pets that you are feeding into your model and the model has to label them and learn the labels, right? This is, you might have different variants of cats, different variants of dogs and different variants of parrots, right? So the model should be able to say, hey, this is a dog, even though two different dog breeds may look very different, right? Now, one of the things that happens is with this kind of data, this is called a categorical variable. And with categorical data, it's oftentimes harder for the model to learn. 
So sometimes you have to make some changes to the kind of data that has been fed to the model in order for the model to learn better. And one of the things that is done in this case is something called encoding, right? And specifically in this case, uh, we call it one hot encoding, right? So one way of doing this would be that you call a cat a one, a dog a two, and a parrot a three, right? Another way of doing this is to use binary values. So you can have zero one for one, right? and you can have one zero for another, etc. right? So instead of having one, two, three, etc., you basically use binary values. And what happens is, if instead of using one, two, three, etc., you use binary values, uh, which are essentially called one-hot encoding values, what happens is the model does not think that these are like numbers, right? If you do one, two, three, the model might think, okay, one, is less than two, is less than three. So it might think that there is some connotation to this, right? But th there is no real connotation to this. We're just trying to convert our categorical variables to something that is more palatable to the model. So one way of doing that is to convert categorical data into one-hot encoding. And again, if you want to look at the specific example that I have in your cheat sheet, you will see uh, on the right, um, rightmost and bottommost, I have an example of how you would convert categorical values into one-hot encoding values. Right? And this is just to tell you that oftentimes uh, you might have to uh, dress up your data in a certain way in order for your machine learning model to be able to learn uh, values or to be able to learn nuances in the data. So with that, I'm going to stop today's episode. But just to recap, we talked about a number of different things. We started off giving you some basics of model fitting to show you the differences between an overfitted and an underfitted model. Also, we talked about the bias versus variance dilemma, where bias is kind of synonymous to underfitting and variance is synonymous to overfitting. We also talked about regularization and the different kinds of regularization. And one of the goals of regularization is to prevent excessive complexity in the model. Right? so that the model does not memorize or overfit to the training data set. We talked about in the second part, we talked about you know, how you basically want to make sure that by training the model, you're not exposing the model just to very different kinds of data than what the model would see out in the wild. Right? So if, if, for example, you train your model on data that is from New York State, and you want to test your model on data that is from Washington State, right? might be very different. Whereas if you've given the model both, um, you know, s um, some data related to Washington State and New York State, then it's going to do better, right? So the distributions, you don't want them to be too different. And then we talked about how we can have a quantitative way to see how good your training data set distribution is as uh, compared to the testing data set that the model would see, right? And we talked about uh, the unseen data set, right? Or the held out data set, which is kind of synonymous to the testing data set, right? And then we came up with these uh, divergences, for example, KL divergence, JS divergence, that can be used to measure the similarity between two uh, distributions, which is kind of relevant in this specific case. And then we don't want data set shift, 
there are ways in which you can address data set shift because in some cases you may not know what the testing data set looks like but in general when possible you want to prevent data set shift and then finally we also talked about uh, ways in which you can uh, convert data so that the data is more palatable to the model for example a machine learning model likes numerical data better but if you have categorical data you can have one hot encoding of the data in order to make the data more palatable to the model. So with that, we're going to end today. And today's episode was on model fitting. I hope you got to know some of the nuts and bolts and intuition of being able to fit a model or learning the parameters of the model and also knowing what the hyperparameters of the model can be and how you can tune that using something called cross-validation. And we will actually talk about that in one of the future episodes. Great. Thank you.